0: Good evening and welcome again. We're happy you are here to spend these moments in God's presence, sharing in looking at his word. I know you will be blessed this evening. I have a lot to share. So right to begin with, I'm going to let you know you need to put your seatbelts on. This evening we're going to Go very fast. We're not going to break the speed limit because we're going to have the angels fly with us as we go through the Word of God. I'm going to share things with you. The last uh, few meetings we've been together, there were two main concepts I'd like to just remind you of before we go any further. The first one was something we talked about before. Let Christ in and he'll cleanse you from sin. You want to repeat that with me? Let Christ in and he'll cleanse you from sin. The the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. We sometimes use the big word justification. What God does in us. But then there's also our part. So this is God's grace. Besides the grace of God, we need to grow in the Lord. And another message we talked about says, Grow in the Lord by the light of his word. You want to say that with me? Grow in the Lord by the light of his word. Let us pray. Holy Father, as we open your holy word right now, may we catch a fresh glimpse of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we may see him In his precious name, amen. Unbelievable story I came across less than three months ago. It happened in New York. A Brooklyn teenager, his name, Richie Molina, 19 years of age, was there with his friend. Notice the word friend. According to the newspaper article, Eddie Edison Guzman 22 year old and they started as friends do you don't always agree and he disagreed with his friend and he got into an argument with him and he punched his friend and he kicked him onto knocked him to the ground they happened to be right there by the railway line and as the train approached Richie rolled his friend Edison onto the tracks his friend I said and the train killed actually Richie killed edison 19 year old and you say man what is happening if you think it's just a problem amongst teenagers let me share with you something else that i saw last year the middle of the year listen to this lena driscoll was dating a man by the name of herman winslow atlanta georgia well herman has got her interested in another lady lena came along With a gun, while Herman was sitting reading the newspaper, she put the gun to his temple and fired twice. Herman was 85, and Lena was 78 years of age. Yes, it is unbelievable. It is so startling to have people who could be almost great-grandparents involved in this type of, what's the best word, immoral conduct you know it's interesting right around september 11 when that happened americans unanimously listen to this unanimously denounced the september 11 terrorist attacks and as a textbook example of evil suggesting that there is something clearly absolute wrong absolutely wrong and absolutely right and so a few months after that in february 2000, uh, February 2002, the Barna Research Group, Ventura, California, they sent out a statistically valid analysis and they quizzed people. And you know what they found out? Despite this denouncing of the terrorist attacks, when they asked Americans, are there moral absolutes? Guess what? 64% of adults and 83% of teenagers said No. Truth is always relative to you and your situation. There are no absolutes. Interesting. When it comes to what people do to you, you want to believe in absolutes. But when it comes to your choices, everything goes. Interesting conclusion. What's more? Now, those that's Americans in general. So some of you might say, what about Christians? Okay, let me tell you about Christians for a moment. It's interesting. Amongst the Christians who were interviewed, only 32% of adults... 32%, less than one-third of adult Christians said they believed in absolutes. And what about teenagers? Less than 10% of Christian teenagers believed in absolutes. Very, very interesting. Now, obviously, sometimes we find all kinds of excuses. I wanted to show you something that I found recently in a cartoon not too long ago, or some time ago. It says, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're condemned no matter what you do. Come on, come on. It's either one or the other. It's a picture of the devil, obviously. And this is called the lesser of two what? Lesser of two evils. That's right. In fact, one of the things I'd like to share with you when we talk on that Uh, meeting that we're talking about, the two-hour discussion. I'd like to share with you some of the things in the area of making good choices in life, moral choices. Another one I found recently, um, this came out some years ago, actually, and I've used it recently, is this one, Time Magazine, front cover, infidelity, big letters, you can see it from wherever you are, and it said, it may be in our genes. only problem is they misspelled the word genes. Okay. They spelled the it G E N E S. It's actually J E A N S. Ah, oh, all kinds of excuses, all kinds of things that people have come up with to get around things. Open your Bibles with me right now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. Very interesting the way it is phrased right there because when we look at this letter that Paul under inspiration wrote to Timothy, If you read it carefully and you reflect a moment on the newspaper and what you've been reading and listening to perhaps recently as to what's happening, I just shared those two stories with you, one about a teenager and one about a lady almost 80 years of age. When you listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you will say, wait a minute, this is true. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, reading from the New King James Version, but know this, that in the last days... Perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pra- pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Now that we will say, oh, that's all the world. Hold on, hold on, folks. Paul always keep takes into account everybody. Look at the last verse now having this can apply to us if we call ourselves christians even having a form of godliness but denying its power Hmm, that can happen right within a church setting and then paul says and from such people turn away you know because of this moral decline because of the problems we're having in society many many leaders are concerned and so uh, groups of Christian leaders are now getting together and they have set aside a certain day. I found this on the website called Ten Commandments Day. If you haven't heard of it, it was scheduled for February. It's now been postponed. Important announcement regarding Ten Commandments Day new date, May 7, 2006. We are excited about the move we have made for the date of the first annual. Notice what that means. This is There's a hope to have this every year. This is the first annual Ten Commandments Day celebration. And the last line of this whole says the following and if you listen carefully you can hear rumblings of the danger of the connecting of church and state listen to this 10 commandments day may 7 2006 will offer us an opportunity to make a bold declaration that america is still quote one nation under god Interesting things that are happening. And incidentally, just last night, or rather early this morning, somebody told me that she was watching 3ABN, and she saw there a discussion of these things related to the um, Ten Commandments Day that is being promoted and announced. The question is, what can we do? What should we do as we want to get serious about our relationship with God? Think about that for, for a moment. If you realize it, all over, wherever we turn, there is the breaking down of society, moral collapse, fascinating and scary. As we look at it, we're, we hope not to be within that because it can affect us badly. Gore, lust, perversion, all kinds of things. Let's go to the Bible and see what the wisest man who ever lived says. We want to go to Ecclesiastes now, the last book of his writings. The wise man Solomon, we have it there. We know that he apparently wasn't always very wise. There's a book after this that's the Song of Solomon, but apparently this song, this Song of Solomon was written early on in his life from the study that some of us and some of the scholars have done. Song of Solomon was apparently lit, written in his earlier life when he was monogamously married. <laughs> then he kept marrying more and more women. Uh, more or less in the second half of his reign. And then he apparently realized his folly and he began to change. The evidence is there. You have to read carefully. And notice what he says when he comes to the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last two verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Let us hear... The conclusion of the whole matter. What is the conclusion? Here's the wise man Solomon. Fear God. Wait a minute. You mean be afraid of God? That's the old English word that means respect, honor. In simple terms, take God seriously. Don't be afraid of God. God wants to be your friend. Fear God. Take God seriously and keep his commandments for this is man's all or as the King James for this is the whole duty of man and then he reminds you, he says in verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now let's go to the last book of the Bible where we find that same concept on the call to be faithful to God's commandments right there in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Revelation 14, verse 12, if you read the context, it is clearly uh, this chapter 14, verse 12, pictures a time after a per- the persecution of those who had been faithful, a persecution that lasts for more than 12 centuries. In fact, we know this is near the end of time. How do I know? Look at Revelation 14:14. 14, 14. Revelation 14:14 14, 14 says, and uh, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Ah, what is that a picture of? Jesus coming second coming that's right if you read the scriptures so go two verses before that just back up two verses now go to verse 12 i wanted to show you the context this statement revelation 14 verse 12 is in the context close to the second coming here is the patience of the saints remember this saints need to be patient yes persevering, holding on, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Again, here we have a call in Ecclesiastes, a call right here at the end of time. Now the question is, which commandments? Because there are many in the Bible, and we know if you count how many commandments and laws and regulations and statutes that human beings have written over time, you know what the total is? Something like 35 Million laws. Now, you know how long it's going to take to go and read all of those. (laughs) Okay? Don't try that. Let's go to what we call the ten that God gave us. I want you to turn, because we need to spend a few reflective moments in the book of Exodus. Go to the book of Exodus, the well-known passage here, where God has redeemed, rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. They had gone down there... Centuries before, they had become enslaved over time. God sent Moses along to be his servant with Aaron, and they were they were brought up. And then here is what God is going to give them. Now be careful. Don't start in verse 3. I remember when I grew up, I praise God, I was brought up in a Christian family. But I memorized the Ten Commandments starting with verse 3. Okay? Don't start with verse 3. Very dangerous to do that. Why do I say that? If you start with this verse 3, there is the danger of the L word. You know what the L word is? Legalism. Legalism. Because you're focusing on law. Don't focus on law. Start with verse 2. And if you start with verse 2, you focus on the Lord. Very important. Listen to verse 2. This is how it starts. Exodus chapter twenty. Now, verse 1 says, and God speak all these words saying, here's God's words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, so that's where we start. First identifying, this is the God who redeemed you. This is the God who rescued you. It's interesting. God first redeems, then he requires. Did you notice that? He saves you so that you can serve him fascinating when you read the bible in its context it makes a lot of sense god saves us by grace then he calls upon us to grow in his will here it is so here are the ten commands incidentally egypt by the way is used as a symbol for sin especially later on in the bible egypt as a symbol for sin now somebody is saying oh but but here for the first time god gives the commandments and he gives them to the israelites hold on very interesting 20 years ago or so, when I was studying at Andrew University, I came across a book by a Lutheran theologian, an Old Testament scholar, dug deep into the word. The name of the book, Toward Old Testament Ethics, by Walter Kaiser, published by Zondervan Press, 1983. And you know what he says? He says, if you read Genesis, the book of Genesis you will find every one of the Ten Commandments before they were even given in Exodus. You do, Dr. Kaiser? Oh, yes. Don't forget. Remember Joseph, Genesis 39, how can I do this great wickedness? Commit adultery and sin against God. Don't forget that, right? You remember idolatry in Jacob's family before he went to Beth-El, the house of God? He took all the idols, they hid them, and they buried them at the tree. Remember Abraham who lied and even the heathen king says why did you lie to me lying was wrong remember Cain who killed his brother Abel Genesis chapter 4 as you read the book of Genesis every one of the 10 commandments were already there in fact before you get to Exodus 20 you might even want to make a note in your Bibles Exodus 16 before they get to Mount Sinai Exodus 16 God says to Moses tell the people Why have you forgotten? Exodus 16, verse 28 and 29. How is it that you have forgotten my commandments? Interesting. How can God say, you have forgotten my commandments, and he hadn't even given them yet? Oh, yes, he had given them. They were already given all the way through. They were there. The Israelites had forgotten God. They'd forgotten his law as they spent years, decades, centuries, In Egypt. When they got to Mount Sinai, God then reminded them and captured, and put it in just the big ten, easy to remember. Ten fingers, ten laws. Very simple. Okay? And it's interesting, the Jews actually divided up five and five. Most Christians go six, four and six. But it's fascinating. So here, the Ten Commandments, God puts them there in a nutshell. Now, I want to go through them quickly, a quick trip with you through that. If you have a pen or pencil, I would suggest you write down just a word or two next to it if you want to write it in your Bible. Find a piece of paper because you see what's fascinating. Once you start with verse 2 and you realize that this is the God who wants to have a personal relationship with you, God rescued the Israelites from slavery, from bondage. Physical bondage, just that's the same way He has p- pulled us out of, sp- out of spiritual bondage to sin. Once you recognize Him as your Redeemer, you have, you say, Lord, forgive me my sins, you have the right relationship with your Redeemer, then you are willing to have this covenant commitment to your Creator. Alright, Remember those two things. So here we will go and see what kind of a relationship does God want. First commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a commandment that simply says... We cannot have a relationship if you include others. It's a law against what we call polytheism. It's a one-to-one relationship. Incidentally, how many of you who are married and say... Your husband, your wife says, it's okay, honey. You can have as many other women as possible. Or you can have as many other men as possible. You know what I'm trying to say? It doesn't work. It's a covenant commitment, one-to-one. God says, I don't want to have anybody else. It's you and I, personal relationship. That's the first one. Number two, don't have any graven image, just any idols. And incidentally, we want both of those commandments we can easily break. Don't just think back then. We here in our contemporary society, too many times, we too have other gods. We have our own idols. Isn't that true? I don't know what yours is, okay, but I know with the temptations I struggle. The things I allow to get in the way before and ahead of God. The things that I put ahead of God. What are the idols? And the whole idea is a relationship. Now look at the Bible. I want you to read verse five. God says, Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous. Jealous is a personal relationship. It's a relationship of love. That's the whole point. The commandments are in the context of love. Go down to verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands of those who do what? Who love me. Interesting. You know, I, this is what's funny. I had read that text. I had memorized it and I had never noticed that it says who love me and keep. Well, I think God, I mean, I should keep the law. No, no, God says I get the sequence right. I show mercy to thousands who do what? Who love and keep. Not simply who keep. The two must go together. It's loyalty. That's where it is. It's a loving loyalty to the Lord of this law. It's a covenant commitment. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you love somebody, you're not going to take their name in vain. You're not going to use it in a bad way. And there are different ways to take God's name in vain. Some, the more obvious one, is to use it as a cuss word. But the less obvious, folks, is when we claim to be Christians, yet when we're with our friends, we live a different life. There's a word we sometimes use, hypocrisy. You know what I'm talking about? That's the danger. Oh, I am one. But really, we take God's name in vain in that sense. So these laws are all. Uh, given as a personal relationship to help us to understand, get to know God. They are a reflection of His character. Commandment number four. Here it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Very interesting. And then it goes on about the seventh-day Sabbath. It talks about your relationship with people, even with your animals. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In a few minutes, I'm going to take a little tangent. I'm going to come back to this fourth commandment because it's important. Here it talks about creation. It's the seventh day is connected with creation. But this is one special day that God says, I am going to set aside one-seventh of your time so that you can spend time with me. To spend quality time with the Creator. By the way, so many times when you're married, if you, you know what I'm talking about, I've been married for more than 25 years, and life gets so busy, you don't get to spend enough time with your beloved. And you know what's interesting? When you were dating, when you were courting, whatever the word is now is going together, you, you spend a lot of time with each other. Isn't that true? If not in reality, on the phone. Anybody here rung up a huge phone bill? Any confessions here? Okay, (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Especially long distance, right? Lots. We love to spend time together with your beloved you want to. That's why God set this one day aside. A special day to go ahead and cement that relationship. The Ten Commandments are a special code. You'll notice the title for my message this evening. The Quarantine Guarantee. Because you see, in Exodus 15 verse 26, God says, If you obey my commandments, I will put none of these diseases on you as they were on the Egyptians. God promises to protect and to look after us. And there is this protection in a sense. When we are willing to be faithful, to follow him, there's that quarantine guarantee in the spiritual sense. This is what God wants for us because he needs and we need to have that personal relationship. Number five, your parents. Obviously, this is a relational issue. Number six, God wants to protect human life. But you see, the problem is sometimes we become literalistic. So let's go to Jesus' example. I want you to keep your hands here in Exodus 20. We're going to come right back there. But what does Jesus say? I always like to go to some of his teachings In every message, it's important to reflect on Jesus' example, his teachings while on this earth. Look at Matthew chapter 5, that famous Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus reminds us to always go a bit deeper than just the surface because the Word of God penetrates. And it's intended in its fullness to deal with not just the action, but also the motive Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Incidentally, when Jesus says you have heard, he is not quoting scripture. Don't misunderstand that. Whenever Jesus quotes scripture, he says, it is what? It is written. Here Jesus is actually going to challenge the restrictive view that was held by some of the teachers. They took this narrowly restricted to only literally killing somebody. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't you restrict that. That's what he's saying. You have heard that they've limited this law to only killing. Jesus is saying, watch out. Okay, I'm going to go further and show you. Whoever murders, this is what will be in danger of the judgment. But, verse 22, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka. Wait a minute, what is Raka? Aramaic for empty head. Okay? Yes. Whoever says, you empty head to his brother, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Yeah, in other words, Jesus says, he goes to the heart of the matter. It's not just an external action. Go to verse 27. Because that Jesus now deals with the restrictive view of the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment in the Bible says, you shall not commit adultery. Those people were, some people were limiting it just to the physical act. Jesus says, no, look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus is dealing here with a very, very important issue, folks. Going right to the heart. Let's go back to Exodus now. Briefly finish off this section. Showing you that Exodus 20, really God is sharing with us beautiful concepts, commandments. These are not 10 suggestions. And these are not multiple choice either. Okay? These are 10 commandments. And we'll talk about that further. Because James talks about this. Do Can you pick and choose? We'll go to that in a few minutes. So now you continue. Verse 15. You shall not steal... Again, protecting that, that which God has blessed us with, you shall not bear false witness. Folks, let me warn you, nothing destabilizes a relationship more than lies. You don't know what to believe. Relationships are shattered by that. And finally, God gets to the heart of it, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Okay? In other words, Before you even steal, it starts in the heart. So it's right here in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Before you even commit adultery, it's in the heart. God has these important, vital ten principles for us so that we can know how to live in loving relationship with our Creator. Very important. And there's the balance. Don't forget, we've talked about it in the past. We are saved by grace through faith so that we can grow by grace in the Lord. There's no legalism involved. This is love to God. When we love Him, we will keep His commandments. I want to move back right now to the fourth, and I'll tell you why the fourth. For the last several meetings, in fact, we're halfway, by yesterday, we're halfway with the series, and the first seven meetings, I've looked at biblical beliefs, scriptural teachings that we as a community hold in common with most other Bible-believing Christians. Starting today, I'm looking at what some might call unique beliefs. Now, it's not totally unique to us because there are some people like the Assemblies of Yahweh, there are Seventh-day Baptists and so forth, who also keep and believe in the Seventh-day Sabbath. But I want to go back there, and from today onwards, I'm going to explore, and I want you to keep an open mind, remember, Acts chapter 17 verse 11, they listened eagerly and then they went to search the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's the challenge I want to make to you. Don't simply say, Dr. Dupre says it, I believe it. No, no, it must be, I believe it because the Bible teaches it. Okay, that's the key here. So I want us to go on a on a trip now into the seventh day Sabbath, spend a few moments there. I want us to look at it. You know what's interesting as you look at that, fascinating. Very first thing you must recognize that everything is couched in this concept of love to God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Now some of the modern translations actually say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments automatically yes and that's true okay it's the same greek text but they actually phrase it differently it's an imperative natural result you will keep my commandments as we just read there in exodus chapter 20 verse 6 showing mercy to thousands of those who do what who love me and keep my commandments it's right there so it is all clearly based on that important love relationship love the heart of the law and you know what linguistically fascinating the fourth commandment makes up 55 words in the Hebrew language. And it's interesting how you have before it some and before it afterwards you know, uh, words. Right in the middle is 55 words. And if you multiply those 55 by 3, you get 165. Guess how many Hebrew words in the Ten Commandments? 163. And it fits right there as close to po- possible in the middle where it, it forms a bridge between love to God and love to human beings fascinating when you study that fourth commandment more deeply as you study though you'll find many texts in the Bible if there was time tonight I would tell you Deuteronomy chapter 9 uh, chapter 7 verse 9 chapter 5 verse 10 chapter 11 verse 13 chapter 11 verse 24 to chapter 30 verse 20 repeatedly it talks about love the Lord and obey love the Lord and walk love the Lord and keep love comes first over and over again. You must keep that sequence in its right order. Please don't misunderstand. Remember, this is based upon love and loyalty to our Heavenly Father. No question whatsoever. Yes, we are saved by grace. Now let's look at the Bible in the New Testament because this law we must look at a little more carefully. James chapter 2, verse 8. Sometimes it appears very sadly so, that those who keep God's laws do so in a way that brings disrepute upon the Decalogue. Why do I say that? You see, sometimes, sadly, you see people walking around with long faces. And it's a matter of, I can't do this. They say, I shouldn't do that, don't do that. And there are so many don'ts. But when I read my Bible, I get a different picture. Look at what James says. James chapter 2, verse 8. James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law. What kind of a law is it? Royal law. Why is it royal? Oh, we'll come to that in a minute. The king of kings gave it. The royal law, according to the scripture, you, what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Here he's capturing, in, in one sentence, the Second half of the Ten Commandments here. Go on. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you know sin is a transgression of the law. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of what? What? A-L-L. So when God says, now which law, hold on, which law, James, are you talking about? Let's go on. Verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgression of the law. Interesting. James is very clear. You cannot keep nine commandments and break one. You're still guilty of breaking the whole law. And then he goes further, and here's the good news. So speak and do as those who will be judged by what? The law of what was that? The law of liberty. Yes, God's law, folks, is a law of freedom. God's law frees us. We aren't encumbered, number one, with guilt. Number two, we don't have to worry about the results What's, what are people gonna say when they found out that, find out that I stole this? What are they gonna say when they found out that I wasn't faithful to my partner, to my wife? What, we don't have to worry about those things. Don't worry about the future. It frees us. God's law is a law of liberty. Have you ever thought of that? And in the heart of God's law of liberty, the Bible says that, in the heart of it, is the special day of freedom. The day of freedom, the Bible actually calls it a delight. Did you know that? The only day is, that is called delight is the seventh day. And you find that in, in Isaiah chapter 58 verse 13. This day has a special nickname, if you please. The seventh day Sabbath is called delight because it is intended to be a wonderful law. Go now to Nehemiah chapter nine, verse six. I said the royal law. Yes, I want to show you this. This in the book of Nehemiah. We will see how he uh, refers to this law of God. Ezra and Nehemiah. Not a long book, just a few chapters here. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you know where that is, before the book of, two books before the book of Job. And we go to Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. He says, You alone are the Lord, and you have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that in them is, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. Interesting. He says, God, you are the creator who made the heavens and the earth, and that reminds you of which commandment in the Ten Commandments Commandments, The fourth. Now go to verse... Go on a little further on. I want you to quickly go... We're not going to read all the verses. Go to verse 13. Look at verse 13. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws... Good statutes and commandments. Yes, it's the Ten Commandments. And now he hones in on one. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, laws by the hand of your servant Moses. God, the creator of the universe, he's the one, the king of kings who gave the royal law. It's a law of liberty. Now I'm going to apologize. If there's someone here who is not a member of this Denomination. And if you have ever seen a person who keeps the Sabbath sadly, sourly, please forgive us. We have totally misrepresented this wonderful day of freedom. This is a day that God wants us to be free from worry, okay? free from work, free so that we can worship God, free so that we can get involved in worthwhile spiritual pursuits. It's a day free from stress, free from secular pursuits. It's a day that we can dig into the scriptures, a day that we can commune together as Christians, a day that we can go out and show compassion for the community. It's the best day of the week. It's a wonderful day. Yes, this is the day that you must delight in. And, and so and so, folks, I'm talking about the seventh-day Sabbath. When the day comes, I remember a friend of mine, oh, this is fascinating. He took time, he and his wife, to teach his kids what this wonderful day was. And you know what happened? When they got to f- Saturday evening, the kids complained. They said, Oh no, we've got to stop the Sabbath. Oh, oh no, what a pity. We've got to stop celebrating this wonderful day. These were kids. They loved the Sabbath so much that when the sun set on Saturday night, they actually complained. Hmm. You get what I'm saying? This is the day of delight. God's delight. Delighting in the Lord. It's an incredible day. It's a wonderful day. I thank God that He has brought this to our attention. Let's look for a few moments at the life of Jesus. We want to always go and look at Jesus. When He was on this earth, what did He do? And I would challenge all of you everyone here spend time when you have some free moments tomorrow after we go on our hike or if you're not going to go on the hike read about jesus go to luke chapter 4 a quick example in his own life yes this is the example of jesus now we know when jesus came to this earth he lived and he taught and he challenged wrong beliefs you know that right he was not afraid to challenge his fellow jews even the leaders he challenged them And as you read the scriptures, fascinating. And here in Luke chapter 4 verse 16, it talks about his practice. Luke 4 verse 16, what did he do? So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus clearly followed This custom, a good custom, regularly, right? Now, here's the question. Oh, he was just practicing the Jewish faith, and he was being faithful to them. If Jesus wanted to get rid of the seventh-day Sabbath, he would have gotten rid of it. What he did do, and that's where I want to challenge you, read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. What Jesus was doing, he was challenging and going against all of the wrong concepts that unfortunately, had grown up over centuries as to how to keep the Sabbath. They'd become extremely legalistic. You couldn't pluck, you couldn't pick a piece of fruit and eat it because you were harvesting. And you shouldn't harvest on the Sabbath. There were more than 30 laws of things you couldn't do. And so when the disciples were walking through the grain fields and they plucked, it wasn't illegal, you were allowed to do that. And when you did that, They said, your disciples are doing what is not permitted on the Sabbath day. Not according to the Ten Commandments, but according to the additional extra laws that they piled on. And the day became a burdensome day. What Jesus did, he got rid of all those wrong concepts. And he was saying, no, this is the wonderful day. This is a delightful day. This is the day on which to do good to others. And to this day, we believe that. We need to put it more into practice. And so you find Jesus repeatedly doing good to others. The Sabbath was made for humankind. Go to Mark chapter 2 verse 27. Just the book before that. And here are the words. I want you to notice very clearly. And the word for man is anthropos. This is man in general, not for males only. Okay, Mark chapter 2. Jesus says, Mark 2.27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, for mankind, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He could show people how to enjoy this day of freedom. And incidentally, if you go back to Genesis, we're not going to go there right now, but Genesis chapter 2, right there, God instituted the seventh day Sabbath, Way before, hundreds of years before, there was even a Jew. Adam and Eve were not Jews. We know. And God instituted the Sabbath right there in Genesis. Fascinating. So when we go to the life of Jesus, we find many things. As you read the Gospels, you will find this out. And Jesus is calling upon us to act out of love for him. This is the day of liberty, a wonderful day of freedom. I have to make just a... Short tangent. I will, I call it a 10-minute tangent. I'm going to have, a, have to make it shorter here because our time is moving too rapidly. You know, I have been fascinated by this whole concept of the issue of evolution. and And I'm not going to minimize. There are major questions that arise on the issue of the seventh day. Sabbath, yes. In fact, I have spent some fascinating time. I've mentioned it to some of you before. Here I've got a 54-page paper look, looking at just the word Sabbath. Specifically related to one text. Fascinating. You can dig deep in the Bible as for hidden treasure. And the deeper you dig, you the more beauties you see. So I want to challenge you, dig deep. But as I've looked at this whole issue of creation, evolution, and today we've been privileged to have a specialist talk on that. I I, I want to agree with him. I, I found this. Listen to this. Science repeatedly reverses its views. Okay? Science say scientists say we've been here for For millions of years, the earth has been here for billions of years. But science keeps changing its views. And when you read the Bible, the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth, and God created within six days, day one, two, three, four, five, six, He created all of these things, and then on the seventh day, He rested. Is that true? Well, folks, I want to challenge you. There are books out there. I'm not finished with this one yet by a biochemist right close by here, Dr. George Javor, and I'm busy reading it, not that I understand everything, you know, I probably would have to read this 10 times before I can begin to grasp some of these things, but, Because it's outside of my league, but it's fascinating as I read, as I find more fascinating things. Listen to what Dr. Javor says in his book called Evidences for Creation. All hypothetical primordial earth scenarios which purport to suggest how life may have sprung into existence are bankrupt. Very strong word. Then he goes further. On one place he says, it is not possible to have a living cell emerge by itself from any environment under any circumstances. And he's taught for 35 years. Here's somebody who's dug very deep. And as I have been reading, I found out that there are actually hundreds of scientists from agnostics to, through evangelicals who are serious. And as they've reflected, they have concluded, listen to this, as, as Irving Kristol, a prominent brainy Jewish social critic said, talking about Darwin's theory, how man and animals came about, he said, it is usually taught as an established scientific fact, and yet it is nothing of the sort. He has five more words. It has too many lacunae or lacunae. And what is that? It has too many gaps, too many missing parts. And here is an interesting, literally hundreds of geneticists, biologists, paleontologists, chemists, mathematicians, and other scientists from agnostic to evangelical, an evolutionary biologist at the Smithsonian Institute, Princeton, MIT, Cornell, all of them are recognizing, hundreds of them are recognizing that this whole concept of evolution just doesn't make sense. It is not a flawless theory. There are all kinds of problems with it. As I mentioned once before, a leading atheist. Okay. Doctor. Anthony Flew, as I pointed out, he now has looked at it and he says, a superintelligence after more than 50 years, more than half a century of promoting philosophical atheism, says God cannot exist. After more than 50 years now, at the age of 81, Dr. Anthony Flew says, a superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. Yes. Now, he hasn't accepted the God of the Bible, but he's beginning to recognize it's impossible. Some people it takes 50 years. I pray to God it won't take some of us that long. Okay? Let's listen to the evidence. Be open-minded. I have so many things here that's exciting. And you know what? Listen to this in case you weren't aware. Christianity and evolution are diametrically opposed. And did you know this? As early as 1860... It was recognized, 1860, I didn't say 1960, I said 1860, as early as 1860, when Darwin, the day, the year after his Origin of Species was published, okay, it was recognized that carried to their logical conclusion, evolution appeared to undercut the very basis of Christianity, if not all theistic religion. You cannot believe in any God if you believe in evolution. Bottom line. Incredible. A friend of mine wrote his old dissertation on the whole concept of death before sin. As you read what people are saying, skeptics, agnostics, Christians, well-known people, they say, you cannot believe in the Bible if you're going to begin to accept evolution. The well-known medical doctor, pediatric surgeon, recognized throughout the world, you know his name, Dr. Ben Hu, Carson. He was interviewed. Now, he is not, obviously, in in these sciences, but he's a medical scientist, and they asked him a question. He's a specialist. He said, What are the consequences of, of accepting evolutionary views of human origins? And you know what he says? By believing we are the product of random acts, we eliminate morality. Right? We eliminate morality and the basis of ethical behavior. For if there is no such thing as moral authority... God who created us, you can do anything you want. Now you know what's interesting? And very sad, and I don't want to minimize this. I remember reading and seeing this magazine. I believe it was Newsweek. Um, it was the Time magazine. The Monsters Next Door. Columbine. Remember Columbine? These two young men who went in there and cold-bloodedly killed all so many of their friends including a teacher. Unbelievable. That was in this Time magazine and of course where were the parents An article, what about guns? But in the same magazine was a major article on evolution. And in there, the title of that article was The First Butcher and i thought the incredible irony the very magazine that they're complaining about what these young men have done then the same magazine they're saying you know this is where we come from anyway or they don't say those words but this is what it amounts to we come from the first butchers and of course as you put the two together you can and and, and there's a little subtitle a bit of neanderthal in all in us all Is there a bit of caveman butchering us all? And as you read it now, they didn't put the two together, but I thought those were the ultimate irony. Complaining about the butchery of these young men and then saying, we come from this anyway. Ah, unbelievable. I gotta hurry on here. I said a quick tangent. You know what is interesting, folks? There are some people that say, oh, but you see, Dr. Dupre, listen, that first, those first two chapters of Genesis, that's just poetry. God was not giving us actual historical fact. Guess what, folks? That is not true. If you read the Bible, even in your Bibles, they never put it in poetic form. The scholars, the Bible translators never do. You go to the book of Psalms and you get this poetry. Have you noticed that? In Genesis 1 and 2, no poetry. Nobody who is serious about the Bible, serious about Scripture, can see this as poetry at all. In fact, let me tell you, James Barr, professor of Hebrew at the University of Oxford. Heard of Oxford? Yes. He was a professor there. Then he came to the United States as part of the brain drain, coming across here. James Barr says this, So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe, double negative, all the Old Testament professors and Hebrew professors at university, world-class universities, do believe what? That's... Genesis 1 through 11 is intended to convey to their readers the ideas that creation took place in a series of six days which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. These are the Hebrew professors. Okay, This guy is not claiming to be a, a, a Christian. They say, I'm studying the Bible. I know my Hebrew. Number two, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provide by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages of the biblical story. In simple terms, he says, if you know your Hebrew and you belong to a world-class university, you will know. Six days was literal. Number two, you will know that when you add up the genie, chronologies, it comes to around six thousand years. And number three, he is finishing up and that Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and have extinguished all human and land animal life except those in the ark. If you're serious about the Bible, you cannot concoct or come up with, oh, that's just poetry. Serious scholars see it. Now, you might try to find another way around it, but if you're serious, you know why? Because the moment you don't believe in creation, that's the beginning of this world, you will have to throw out um, many, many biblical beliefs. Because if you don't believe that God created Adam and Eve... If you don't believe in creation, then how can you believe in sin? How can you believe in a fall into sin? Because that's what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 3. God It says God created Adam and Eve. They then sinned in Genesis 3. If you don't believe in the creation, you won't believe in sin. Then you don't need a savior. Very important. If you believe in any aspect of this, this evolutionary concepts that we're talking about, you have to throw out sin, salvation, judgment, and, obviously, the seventh-day Sabbath, because the fourth commandment says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. All right? And it's right there. It's in the tenth, in the Ten Commandments. So you, if you're serious about the Bible, you have absolutely no choice to say, this is the reality. Let's be serious about it. I want to challenge you, my brother, my sister. I'm not saying there are no problems. There are serious challenges. But let's be serious about the Word of God. Let's say, let's dig into the Word of God. Let's be committed. And so we cannot go this direction. I want to share some good news with you, and that is there are people who are recognizing this the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. Some of you might have heard of some rumblings. Yes, for a few years we've been having discussions, evolution and creation. The scholars, uh, theologians and scientists and administrators have gotten together. I was privileged to be one of those who was invited. When I was working in Peru, they invited me to come to this big meeting 80 scholars, and I was privileged to be there at the first faith and science conference where we talked together, we listened to each other. Good news? Praise God. There is more and more evidence that the biblical record is clear and correct. The bad news? Unfortunately, some, some, even amongst us, have begun to slip and to follow others. In fact, one person even said publicly And this man claimed to be a theologian, but he said publicly, when push comes to shove, I have to go with the scientists. And when I sat there, I began to wonder and think. And I've come up with a new word. I have now concocted a word. I have decided that people who do that are not theologians, they are anthropologians. An anthropologist studies human beings, okay? An anthropologian listens to the words of human beings and believes what they say rather than what God, theos, says. Theologian or anthropologian. But the good news is this. As a community of Bible believers, the 7th Adventist Church has chosen, and I'm going to read one statement, we Reaffirm the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. That the seven days of the creation account were literal 24-hour days forming a week identical in time to what we now experience as a week and that the flood was global in nature. This is part of our reaffirmation that was voted in 2004. So I just want to affirm to you to know what the conclusion was from that study. And in addition, they also challenge and they say, we call on all members... Uh, We call on all boards and educators, I'm reading number four, at Seventh-day Adventist institutions at all levels to continue upholding and advocating the church's position on origins. Did you hear what I just said? Yes. This is their statement. We call on all boards and educators. We, along with Seventh-day Adventist parents, expect students to receive a thorough, balanced, and scientifically rigorous exposure to an affirmation of our historic belief in a literal recent six-day creation, even as they are educated to understand and assess competing philosophies of origins that dominate scientific discussion in the contemporary world. Hmm... That's right. This is the statement they're challenging us to be faithful and to be firm. We call on all members of the worldwide Seventh-day Advent family to proclaim, and I'm doing that right now, to proclaim and teach the church's understanding of the biblical doctrine of creation, living in its light, rejoicing in our status as sons and daughters of God, and praising our Lord Jesus Christ, our Creator and Redeemer. That's what we are called to do, folks. Now, you know it's fascinating and sad? While this is happening, we're challenging people. It, it, it's, it's fascinating and exciting. It's sad to see some of folk drifting away, teaching teaching things that are contrary to the clear written word of God. But it's exciting to see that there are others, even not of the Seventh-day Adventist family, who are making statements. I've got to read to you this. You see, today, I like to make sure my... Stuff is current and correct. So I got on the phone and made a long-distance call today. Down to Michigan. And I dialed eight one zero seven nine four three three zero one. And when I dialed that, I dialed it intentionally to find out whether this really was correct. And I called and I said, do you have a little paper that your church puts up? By the way, is that St. Catherine's? Yes, this is St. Catherine's Catholic. Where are you located? Oh, we're, uh, you know, and they, she told me we're in Algonac. I said, uh, St. Clair Boulevard, yes, what number? I checked, literally, I checked to make sure. I actually asked the street address and all that, and I said, did you put out a little thing called the Sentinel? Yes, we used to put it out before. We don't have it anymore. Oh, do you have a priest there by the name of Father Leo Broderick? Because he wrote this as far as this says. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, Father Leo Broderick, he retired 10 years ago, approximately. And I looked at this, 1995. I said, yes, this is authentic. Now I'm going to read to you from this written by the priest. Listen carefully. One, one paragraph. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church, the Roman Catholic Church, ever did happened in the first century. I'm reading, I'll read the whole paragraph, not leaving a word out. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. In quotes, the day of the Lord, end quote, Brackets, Dies Dominica, Latin, was chosen not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. The day of resurrection, the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, came on the first day of the week. So, this would be the new Sabbath. Now, one more sentence. Listen carefully now. From this Retired priest, he says this. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority. Do you believe that? Okay. So he's talking to the... Who said amen. Listen again. I'm going to repeat. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Wow. Did I read that correctly? Let me read that sentence again. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically... Hey, are you logical? You just said you believe in the scriptures. Oh, I forgot to ask you that. Are you logical? Oh, only people that side. Okay, let me go back here. Okay, yeah. Uh, Okay, Uh, sole authority. Who of you believes the scriptures are the sole authority? Okay, are you logical? Good now I understand people who think that the scripture should be the sole authority should logically become seventh day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Wow, okay, and the authenticity I checked if you want to come to me afterwards i 'll give you the phone number i didn 't want to say it slowly because i don 't want to, you know two hundred people calling. <clears throat> We want to be nice. We just appreciate that statement made so clearly by the <laughs> retired priest. <laughs> Let me give you one more statement. Okay. From a commentary, a Bible commentary, book of Colossians, by H.A. Ironside, published in New Jersey, 1997. He says this. There is no commandment. This, by the way, is a Sunday-keeping Christian. There is no commandment in the New Testament inculcating the sacredness of the first day of the week and demanding that Christians observe it scrupulously for holy purposes. Yet, the consensus of judgment of spiritually-minded believers, that's a catchphrase for what? Tradition. Ah, I'll repeat it. The consensus of judgment of spiritually-minded believers, there's nothing in the Bible. But the people, all through the centuries, has led to the honoring of this day, Sunday, as a time of worship, meditation, and Christian testimony. Isn't that interesting, folks? Here we have other people who are saying, it is not in the Bible. What is in the Bible? If you believe in the Bible, and you are logical, then you have only one choice. If you're logical and loyal. There it is, the key. If you're logical and loyal, you have one choice. Fascinating. My challenge to you is very simple. Don't go with the customs of Christians. Go with the commandments of the Creator. That's the key. I want to leave you with a phrase that I want you to try to memorize. It's not a long one. It's a simple one because I want to always remind you that we start at the beginning. We're saved by grace. And after saying saved by grace, the words are, we love to live God's law. Notice that. Saved by grace, we love to live God's law. Say it with me, please. Saved by grace, we love to live God's law. And I phrase it that way intentionally because it is living it out of love. I, I had the word keep earlier on today. I threw out the word keep because keep implies holding on. No, let's live it. Let's share it. Let's, let's show and tell others with compassion, with joy. And, and remember again, I mentioned this before, let's be tough on ourselves and tender towards others. I use the word tolerant. I threw that out because the word tolerance has not a good connotation as a Christian nowadays, okay? Be tough on yourselves and tender towards others. Some of us have a ways to grow. Let's encourage one another. And when I say toughen ourselves and tender on others, I'm simply using Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 1 that says judge not. So let's encourage one another. Some of us are, are, are finding it difficult to, to process some of these things. But you know, let's be biblical. Let's encourage one another. A short story to close off here. Several years ago, a preacher moved to Houston, Texas. Some weeks after he arrived, he had occasion to ride the bus from his home down to the downtown area. When he sat down, he looked at his change, and he discovered that somehow he had a quarter, just 25 cents more change than he should have gotten. He thought about what to do. He thought to himself, you better give back the quarter. It would be wrong to keep it. And then he thought, oh, forget it. It's just a quarter. (laughs) Come on. Who would worry about that little amount? Anyway, the bus company gets too much fare anyway. You know, they overcharge. Accept it as a gift from God and praise Him. When his stop came, he got off and he walked to the front of the bus and he turned to the bus driver and he said, "Uh, excuse me, driver, you gave me uh, too much change. The driver turned to him and smiled. And he said, aren't you the new preacher in town? I have been thinking lately about going to worship somewhere. I just wanted to see what you would do if I gave you too much change. I'll see you at church. When the preacher stepped off the bus... He literally grabbed the nearest light pole, held on and said, Oh God, I almost sold your son for a quarter. Friend, my challenge to each one of you. If we've been saved by grace as we saw there, do you want to live God's law by love that's the challenge for you that's the challenge for me growing is sometimes painful but you know what's exciting is that we will we can by god's power grow in grace and in the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ I want to make an appeal this evening, but I would like us to sing a hymn. And during that hymn, I want us to reflect. I'm actually going to have you sing this beautiful hymn, Open My Eyes That I May See. Number 326, it's a beautiful hymn. Reflect on those words. And, and today, I'm going to have you think. There might be some here who have been like the older brother in, in the prodigal son. You know what I'm talking about? The legalistic guy who stayed home. He didn't go out and literally sleep with prostitutes, but he was not converted. He was legalistic. Okay. There might be some here who have not enjoyed the delights of this day of, of living in God's love and of sharing it positively. I want you to be thinking very carefully because I'm going to be making an appeal to you to There might be some who've never seen the beauties of God's law. Now, the the one group is those who have been legalistically inclined. The second one, those who've perhaps been ignorant of this beautiful law. And that's the second group I'm going to be calling upon to make a, a commitment. So reflect on that as we sing this hymn. I'm going to ask you to stand right now as we sing this beautiful hymn. Thank you, Holy Father for helping us to see the beauties in your word, this wonderful law of love that you have given us. Lord, I don't know who might still be struggling. If anyone is here, Lord, continue to work on their heart. I thank you that it appears at least here this evening we have folk who love you, who have understood your law, who have seen these beauties. I pray that you'll bless us to live out your life within us, to help us to see your beautiful law, your law of liberty in all of its fullness, so that others may see Jesus through us. In his name we pray. Amen.